It's a delight to be back here with you again. I feel like I've come home in a lot of ways. I am now serving as an interim chaplain in a retirement home, retirement community, I should say. We got a lot of residents in individual residential apartments and all the way up to critical care and to Alzheimer's units. And it's a whole different ministry than I am used to. I had seven funerals in ten days because people tend to die when they get old. Did you know that? <laughs> so it's a delight to see this front row here. Boy, that's good. Instead of people dozing in their wheelchairs. <laughs> New Year's always finds people feeling all kinds of strange feelings. And in the community where I live now, a lot of people face New Year's with a kind of melancholy, a kind of... Uh, it doesn't affect me that way. New Year's is kind of exciting. It's, it's kind of a new leaf and all the rest, although it's just a creation of us. There is no real existence of a new year. It's a convenience of, of humanity trying to organize the experience of successiveness. But New Year's causes me to have all kinds of strange thoughts, stranger than normal, like, have you ever wondered why that process that my wife does every so often to have her hair fixed is called a permanent And I filled out, I've started to fill out my, my income tax, which is just a lot of fun. And as I'm filling out my income tax, it asks for my permanent address. <coughs> really? Permanent address. I'm tempted so much to put the glories of heaven, but I don't know how the IRS would react. <laughs> and when I go down to the dining room, Marvelous meals. But every so often they serve eggplant. And there's no egg in eggplant. That confuses me. I, I don't understand that. And is it really necessary to call the place where I go to catch a plane the terminal? <laughs> Not really encouraging. And if I buy a cured... I went and at Christmas time... I bought a cured ham. What had that <laughs> disease had it been cured from? <laughs> Strange thoughts. I, why is it when a light is out, we can't see it? When the stars are out, we can see them. Does that make sense to you? I, well, like I said, Weird thoughts. But I also have some that are a little bit more significant than that. Thoughts that fill my waking moments at night. Thoughts that cause me concern as I look back at the last year and I anticipate the year ahead. And I am concerned with the growing gap 
between the very, very rich and the very, very poor. Right now, in Atlanta, Georgia, there are people that paid $20,000 for their seat at that game. That is nuts. And I am also concerned about some of the goofball solutions to the difference between the very rich and the very poor. And I'm concerned about the revival of racism, which I've had to deal with this past week in some strange ways. The insanity of substance abuse and the terror of terrorism and the frightening reality of youth gangs and hooliganism and the shallow me-first and only lives of so many people and the dark despair and pessimism of some people and the ungodliness of some of God's people. Man, that just really gets to me. And I could go on about these things until we all feel like we ought to go home and just pull the covers over our head and maybe it'll go away. And you look at the current scene and it's endlessly reported. My goodness, when something happens... They go on and on and on, day after day after day after day with the same thing. Try to think reasonably, reasonably, about the Middle East, or about Sudan, or Egypt, or Somalia, or Iran, or Iraq, or Afghanistan, or any of those places. Try to think reasonably about the butchering that's taking place in Mexico in the drug trade. Or think reasonably about the unspeakable crimes of the mass killings or the decline of moral standards in our community or the billions stolen by trusted CEOs. My grandpa kept his money under a mattress. It wasn't enough money, so it disturbed his sleep at all. But he didn't trust banks or bankers. And I used to laugh at him. I don't laugh at him anymore. My son-in-law is a big-shot banker. And we have some interesting conversations. <laughs> I can't understand, and I'm troubled by suicide bombers. Can you imagine that? I mean, hoping, taking pride in the fact that you're handsome teenage boy or daughter strap explosives around their body and blow themselves up. And you're really thrilled if they take a lot of people with them. It's no wonder to me that a writer named Havelock Ellis wrote in his book, The Dance of Life, the place where optimism most flourishes is in the insane asylum. And H.G. Wells, before he died, wrote... Mankind is not the privileged favorite of Mother Nature. And in spite of all my lifelong optimism, it now seems that the whole universe is utterly bored by the whole species of mankind. And I can see the human race sweeping along the stream of fate to defeat, degradation, and final extinction. Ah, oh, that's a great thing to read the first thing in the morning or the last thing at night, isn't it? But for believers, that doesn't ring true at all. 
the despair that we see around us, the despair that I see on the faces of teenagers, the, the gothic styles of dress, and, and the music that often sounds like a train wreck. And nihilism, which was a philosophical concept that I learned about in college, but I see around me now. It's revived by those people who stop chasing indulgence and amusement long enough to think. And the fact remains, society is confused and baffled by the conflicts of our age. I don't see solutions in the past or on the horizons to some of our problems. The brutality of evil men, the depth of human pain, the terror in the eyes of children. Can you imagine being scared to go to school? And secular man, the non-believer, seems to respond with either pessimism or despair or complete self-indulgence that ignores it all. Okay, that's enough of that. What is the Christian response to our culture and our society? What is it? Now listen, we have to insist that the Christian response to our society's woes and the darkness we see around us must be both rational and honest. And we have seen way too much stuff that goes as Christian response that is neither rational nor honest. So let's begin with the frank admission that we don't have a dogmatic answer to the sufferings in Somalia or Sudan. Or dogmatic answers to the earth slides that bury whole villages in Guatemala or earthquakes or the crash of airplanes or the dying of innocence and the problem of pain and suffering. As Christians, we know that this is not the best of all possible worlds, nor is it the way God created it to be. When friends of mine say, Bud, what kind of a God do you have that allows this kind of thing to go on? I say this world is not what God created. It has the fingerprints of fallen man all over it. And that's what our problem is. We can't point an accusing finger at God. So here's what God's word reports God wants for us. Not just in 2013, but at all times. It's found in Pastor Cody's favorite book, Romans. <laughs> you knew what I was going to say. It's not his favorite chapter 8. It's chapter 15. I love chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation, and what shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's great. But Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's my New Year's prayer for all of us. This verse is a great summary of life as we are intended to share it together as brothers and sisters in Christ. It describes how we can be free from the temptation to despair or retreat or rubbing our hands in anxiety in a, in, because of our world. 
Instead, it sets us free from that kind of paralysis in order to enable us to do something about the problems of our world. Tonight at the evening vespers in the retirement community where I'm at, we have a man by the name of Rick Reynolds that is going to be presenting our service. Rick is the executive director of something called Operation Night Watch, which is a ministry on Skid Road in First Avenue, Seattle, that I started in 1967. I started it with what money I had in my pocket, loose change. The budget is now over $800,000 a year. Because we feed 170 to 190 people every single day, we provide bed nights for about 30,000 bed nights. That's one person on a mattress for one night, 30,000 a year. And I think of the enormity of that. And I remember when we started the program, everybody would say, Bud, you're just, you're trying to empty the ocean with a teaspoon. And I said, I know that. But the ocean is at least one teaspoon less. If we are filled with the hope that the Lord gives us through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we are freed not from sitting around saying, oh, look at the homeless, look at the hungry. We are freed to do something about it. And what we do may not solve the problem, but it will speak to the problem. The source of that. May the God of hope. I don't know how you'd define hope, but hope is not some kind of wishful thinking. It's not some kind of an ostrich sticking its head in the sand saying, I hope it'll go away. That's not what hope is. The Bible speaks of hope as an absolute reality, something that is sure, that is strong, that is anchored. So it says in Hebrews, and this is contemporary English version. I don't think you may have heard this one. From Hebrews 6. So when God wanted to prove for certain that his promise to his people couldn't be broken, he made a vow. God can't tell lies. And so his promises and vows are two things that can never be changed. We have run to God for safety, and now his promises would greatly encourage us to take hold of the hope that is right in front of us. This hope is like a firm and steady anchor for our souls. So Paul writes and says, May the God of hope. Our future is as bright as the promises of God. And the promises of God are as trustworthy as God himself. And our hope for 2013 and every year that God gives us is based on his promises which he has bound himself to by an oath. Boy, that's pretty sure. He's the source of our lives. Thank goodness. He's the source of my hope. <laughs> Living with a whole bunch of older people around me, some of whom are very wealthy. It is really amusing and disturbing to hear the way they talk about the economy. 
their own personal economies. And people who are saying, I am so worried that I will not have enough money for the, my life. I'll say, money is a problem? Well, not yet. Hmm. How soon do you think it'll be a problem? Well, I don't know. Well, approximately how much a year does it cost you to live the way you want to live? And they'll give me a number. And I'll say, okay, take your net worth and divide it by that number. How many years? You know, they've got to live to be 140 years old <laughs> before they run out. And besides that, we live in a community that has a board of benevolence that promises you will never outlive your money in this institution, in this home. You will be taken care of by our benevolence. So they don't have any worries, but they like to worry. It's just part of their nature, the DNA. They like to worry. And I say, man alive, I serve a God of hope. And the source of my hope is not that I have enough money stored up, because I don't. It is because I know that my God is sure and has promised himself to take care of my need. not the fluctuating values of the economy. I have a friend that gets up at 5.30 every morning and goes to McDonald's. Now, I don't want to start my day at 5.30 at McDonald's, but he does. And he sits there and goes through the Wall Street Journal carefully, carefully. I mean, the print is really small in that stocks. He must have good eyesight. And he's going through that kind of thing and after he's been there for an hour going over his Wall Street Journal, he has made up his mind whether it's going to be a good day or bad day. And I said, George, you're absolutely nuts. You are taking a lousy newspaper printed by somebody you've never met on the East Coast, and five cents worth of printer's ink and paper has determined whether your day is going to be good or bad. Wow. That's pretty weak to build your life on, especially when you got the money George has. <laughs> it's absolutely silly. My relationship with my broker, <laughs> isn't that a funny term? Broker, that, that, he'll help you. <laughs> okay, the God of hope. Now, the measure and the quality of life in the God of hope Notice what that is. May he fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so you may overflow with hope. Abandon the idea of a carefully giving God. We don't have a carefully giving God. He is an extravagant, extravagant God. I mean, if you just just take a look at his creation, for heaven's sakes, they keep discovering new creatures, new birds. When I lived on Bali, I went to a bird park, and I saw birds I didn't believe. They were right in front of me. I didn't believe them. How in the world could those colors and that plumage and that shape and that figure, and I'd never seen that thing before. And I think, Man, God, he just, 
He creates these amazing things, and they're in places of the world that 99% of the world never even knows it's existed. God does it for his pleasure, and we are created for his pleasure. And that God can fill us so that we overflow. God is a God of abundance. God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus said of himself, I have come that they might have life and have it what? Abundantly. Not a little bit. Abundantly. Remember when Jesus was feeding what we call the feeding of the 5,000? <laughs> Somebody, one of the disciples said, you know, Lord, we've got to send these people away because it's, it's, it's noon and we don't have, I mean, there's no 7-Eleven here and, and we've got to do something. And Jesus said, check things out. They come back and say, there is not enough so that each can have a little. And then Jesus took care of the problem and what? They had 12 baskets left over when they'd eaten their fill, not a little. Why do we sometimes think God is the God that is kind of penurious, kind of careful with what he gives us. One of the things I love about being a grandpa is that I can be foolishly extravagant with my grandkids. And how do my grandkids react to me? Oh, they think I'm a cool old man. (laughs) They love me because they know that when they ask grandpa for a buck, He just might give them five if they can justify the one. My kids want to know why I didn't do that when they were my kids. (laughs) I don't know. I, I think I'm trying to become more like my God who gives overflowingly the extravagant love. Remember the prodigal son who comes home in Luke 15? I mean, he's worked up his speech. He's all ready with it. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy. And the father interrupts him. Doesn't even get a chance to give his whole speech. And he says, hey, bring the robe. He doesn't tell him, go take a shower. We'll put you on probation for six months. He says, bring a robe and put it on and get the ring and put it on him and kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. And it was the religious, careful, obedient elder brother that was the spoil sport in the whole thing. And the father says, don't you understand? I am filled with joy. This is my child who has been lost and has been found, who's dead and is alive again. The Bible says of us, if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have passed from death to life, and God wants a party to celebrate that fact. So, the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Now, look, there's a big difference between joy and happiness. We've got a lady in our community by the name of Margaret Brand. Some of you may have heard of Dr. Paul Brand, the man who was an amazing surgeon who created ways to correct 
leprous hands that had become useless so that they could be able to be used again. A man that was in India as a missionary for many years and then ran the Carville Leprosarium Institute down in Louisiana until leprosy almost totally disappeared from the scene of culture. A book called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, written by Paul, uh, by Paul Brand and Phil Yancey. One of the amazing books that I, I love in my library. Margaret, at the age of about 45, with six children, living as a missionary with Paul in India, receives a note from a runner one day from a neighboring hospital in another village saying, our eye doctor has had to return to England suddenly. We need an eye doctor. Margaret Brand is a physician, but not an eye doctor. She sent the runner back with a note that's saying, I'm not an eye doctor. I can't help. They sent the runner right back and said, you will learn. Be here at 9 o'clock Monday morning. And Margaret Brand went there and became and is now recognized as the world's foremost authority in ophthalmology for leprosy patients. Margaret Brand lives across the street from me in this community. And one Sunday I was preaching in our community and I saw the ambulance and the aid car come past, which is rather rapid and often in a place like that. And I stopped and found out that Margaret had fallen in the shower, broken her shoulder, and two bones in her neck. I went to see her that afternoon in the hospital as soon as she'd recovered from or as soon as she'd come out of surgery. She is now 92 years old with a broken neck and a broken shoulder. And I said, oh, Margaret, I am so sorry. And she said in that sweet little voice with an English accent, oh, don't be sorry. I'm not alone. Right now, Margaret Brand is playing her violin with a neck brace playing her violin in our services back there for our worship band, which is not quite like your worship band, I understand. <laughs> but Margaret is playing that, and she is a woman that everybody in our community, including the non-believers and the atheists and all the rest, everybody in our community is drawn to Christ because of this woman's joy. She's not very happy about having a busted neck. She's not very happy about being 92 with all the infirmities that's coming along with that at her age. She's not very happy that Paul is dead and has gone to be with the Lord. She's not happy about a lot of things, but she is so full of joy. You understand the difference between joy and happiness? Remember, Paul is writing to the Romans out of prison. He doesn't have much reason for happiness but he's writing about, may the God of hope fill you, not just give you a little bit, but fill you with joy. Joy is intense gladness, the dictionary says. Intense gladness. 
It's not dependent upon the externals of life because the source of joy and peace is the God of hope. Remember, joy is one of the primary fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace. That's why Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joy is the intense gladness that comes from the certainty that Paul writes about in Cody's favorite chapter. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither present nor future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now you can't believe that even a little bit and not have hope for yourself, for your family, for this church, for our world. And peace. Peace is the inevitable result of believing, of really believing operationally what I just read, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. So relax, folks. Don't be so blamed uptight. Why is it Christians are viewed by our world, by our our irreligious culture as really uptight, joyless people. I had a friend that told me one time, Bud, you Christians are the strongest people in the world. Oh, really? How do you mean that? You can throw a wet blanket farther than anybody I've ever seen. (laughs) That's not what I'm talking about, folks. May the God of hope fill you with joy, all joy and peace. How? As you trust in him. Don't trust in the economy. Don't trust in the politics. Don't trust in the Seahawks. Trust in him. That's the condition. The peace comes. The serenity comes from the confident knowledge that while we may not understand, have an explanation, or like many things that happen to us, that wound our hearts, that baffle our minds, that shatter our dreams. We are, no matter what, in his loving hands, the hands that are pierced for us. And the condition? As you trust in him. The overflowing joy and peace does not come to those who trust in their professions or who trust in their possessions or who trust in their pastor or who trust in their church as you trust in him. Because he can be trusted. I look back on 50 years of ministry, and I think there are a lot of times when I really fouled it up. (laughs) When people have been so disappointed in me. When I have been disappointed in me. I remember one Sunday I preached a terrific sermon. I can remember one. And I preached this terrific sermon, and when I got home, my wife said to me at the dinner table, Sweetheart, that message today was terrific. 
and my teenage son said, it really was, Dad. Now you can see what I'm doing. I'm starting to swell like a toad when they're talking to me like that. And then my son followed up with the statement, that really was, Dad. I have a question. When are we going to see it? Man, that just broke my heart. That just broke my heart. And once I recovered from the pain and the shock, I realized that was the word from the Lord through my son. So I know I have failed, and I know I've let people down. I know I've disappointed others and myself. But nothing, not my failures or your failures, are going to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Man, that is good news. That is incredible news. In spite of the bad news our world seems to major in. The true fact is, we cannot love with a divine love. We cannot really trust Christ and receive peace and joy without the Holy Spirit filling us. That's the secret, folks. It is, you know, if you read Galatians chapter 5, it says, our lives are filled with two forces, constantly fighting to win control over us, and our wishes are never free from their pressures. And when the lower nature has its way with us, it produces this fruit, and Galatians 5 has a disastrous list of things. But it goes on. However, when we allow the Holy Spirit to have his way with us, he, not me, he, the Holy Spirit, produces love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, all of the kind of things I long for and frequently don't see. Because I am trying to do that. <laughs> sometimes when God seems a long way away and my heart and my mind seems to be in the dark, and sometimes when a neighbor or a church member seems self-righteous and judgmental and even hostile, and I try to, oh, I gotta love them. I'm their pastor. I gotta love them. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty disciplined. I can discipline my, I can work it up. I can, hmm, I love you. <laughs> but you know, when you, when you pump up that kind of thing, it, it feels counterfeit. It looks counter, it even smells counterfeit. Because it is counterfeit. That's why we are so dependent upon the Holy Spirit to produce within us all that. So my, my, my New Year's prayer for you as well as for me is meant with all my heart. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what this year is going to hold for you. I can assure you it'll probably have a, a load of joys and a load of delights and a load of troubles and a load of cares. That's the way life is in this fallen world. But the more intimate we become with our God of hope, 
the more we allow him to empower us by his Holy Spirit, the lighter will become our burdens because our hearts are made lighter with hope. Hope in the knowledge we are not bearing them alone. So, may our new year be marked by a dance of joy, by the serenity of peace, by the overflow of hope, and by the amazing power of the Holy Spirit.